again in the book of Mark, chapter 1. The uh, focus this morning will be the, the end of this uh, section 29 through 34, but I'd like to read the, for the context just to remind us of this day that our verses are set in. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, I'm going to read down through verse 34, and then I've asked Tim Failer if he would ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach, and they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew and with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity you've given us today on the Lord's Day to come into your house and fellowship, um, to participate in prayers and singing of your word, to uh, be under your teaching. We thank you for this worship service. We pray that you guide our hearts and spirits wash them in your word so that indeed God is all else to us except that your vision, your wisdom permeates all that we do, that we not be guided and worship our own perceptions of good, presume what we want to be your will, but that we um, stay focused in your word. We pray that you allow us to see your gospel, to hear your gospel preached as we go back into the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and you hear this proclaimed be with Mark as he teaches us soundly, guide him with your spirit, and move our hearts with your spirit as well as we can hear and obey. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you think your schedule is full. What a day. I mean, if we put the synoptic gospels together, the day is even longer for Jesus. We would have to go back to Matthew chapter 5 
And we would find that Jesus' day began by climbing a mountain. And he sat down on that mountain and preached the Sermon on the Mount. And then on the way down the mountain, he healed a man with leprosy. And then as they got down to Capernaum, he healed the centurion's servant by just saying the word. And then he entered the synagogue and he preached. And immediately after preaching, he was encountered by the demoniac bursting into the synagogue. And Jesus rebuked the demon and rescued the man whom the demon had possessed. And then, as they were leaving the synagogue and heading to lunch, he entered Peter and Andrew's house as guests, along with John and James, and they find, they come to him and say, Peter's mother-in-law has a, a burning fever. And immediately he went to her and raised her up and restored her to health and to service in the house. And after sundown, they opened the door to find that the whole city was at the door, bringing their sick and demon-possessed for him to heal the, all variety of illnesses and casting out many demons. Whew. What a day. By itself, this little scene at Peter's house of his mother-in-law seems somewhat tame to these other miracles that Jesus performed that day. But I think that it is especially important for us to see Jesus in this scene, in this light. Peter and Andrew probably, as I can understand it from the histories, grew up in Bethsaida, but were living, as they were fishermen nearby in the Sea of Galilee, that they were living in Capernaum at this time. And many believe that Peter's house became the headquarters for Jesus' ministry for a time, that perhaps the beginning of that house ministry is in this passage before us. We know that Peter was married, and in fact, uh, kind of as an aside, Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that Peter's wife accompanied him in his ministry. And the, his, the, the writer Clement of Alexander is among those who believe that Peter's wife was martyred for her faith along with Peter. And that Peter and his wife had a, at least one daughter who was a paralytic. And I don't know if she accompanied them on his ministry, but we see him as a married man, perhaps taking care of his widowed mother-in-law living in Capernaum at this time. The gospel writer, Mark, is said to have been a companion or friend of, of Peter, uh, some label him as an amanuensis, which is a big 25-cent word for he was a literary assistant. He took dictation when Peter told the gospel and told his experiences of meeting Jesus and the things that they did. And perhaps in this passage, what you're seeing, or 
reading is Peter's account of that day. These are the things that stuck in Peter's mind that Mark remembered and wrote and recorded by the Holy Spirit for us to read. His recounting of these great events of that day. And we see this tender moment, this time when Jesus is coming not as Lord of all, not in mighty power, but he's coming as a friend. He's coming really as a brother with Peter and James and John and Andrew coming to the house <laughs> together. We see the gentle healer, the son of God as the gentle healer come to his friends. It's a private moment. It's a familial illustration of his grace and love for them. And perhaps, and the language is, is kind of hard for, to understand exactly how they approached Jesus with this little problem that they had. Perhaps they didn't quite know what to say and how to act if this was the first time that he had been in their home. But what's happening when they get there? Well, they probably expected uh, Peter's wife and his mother-in-law to be setting the table, to be preparing the meal, their Sabbath meal for their guests. Because again, James and John and Jesus were the guests uh, coming with the two brothers uh, to home. And, and yet we find his mother-in-law prostrate. She's lying in bed with this burning fever. Um, here it says fever. Uh, Luke, the, the physician who wrote his gospel, uh, apparently is the one who gives us a little more detail, a burning fever, a great fever, which was said at that time to be a strong and violent disease, something that was really to be feared, um, apparently an excessive fever, and as we know even today, high fevers can, in many, some cases, lead to death. I was reading about the Talmud, which was, as I can understand it, an exposition of, of the Mishnah, which was the, the, the rabbinic law, how they interpreted the scriptures and the laws that they uh, wrote um, according to that. And the Talmud is an explanation of that. And apparently in the Talmud, uh, as I can understand it, there is a, a, a remedy for this kind of burning fever. And so if Jesus had followed that remedy, this is what he would have done. Um, apparently involves tying an iron knife with a braid of hair to a thorn bush. And then on successive days, you turn to the book of Exodus and read in chapter 3, beginning with the verse that says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. You know the story. Moses out tending the flock, and then he sees the burning bush, and he turns to, well, what is this? And on each successive day, you read another verse verse 3, and then verse 4, and then verse 5. And after you read Exodus 3, 2 through 5, you cut down the bush. <laughs> and then you turn to another section of the Talmud and read the magical incantation. And it goes on and on and on how to solve the problem 
remedy the burning fever that your loved one has. But here we see a much more powerful, much more human answer to the burning fever. It does involve human weakness, but it also involves the tenderness and the gentle touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was the disciples' action an apology for inconvenience? She's in bed. She should have been making the meal, but she's not able. Or do we see it as a prayer for healing? The scriptures don't tell us, but we know Jesus' reaction immediately upon learning the situation that they told, her, told him about. He came to her and raised her up. Whatever the request was for healing or just to explain the situation, he immediately responded. He came to her as a friend. He came to her as one concerned, and he made contact. And we'll see that as we go through the Gospels, that the idea of Jesus touching others, holding their hand, or touching their eyes, or holding their ears. These are things that Jesus showed and taught from his heart of affection for them. And as a sign of where the power has come from. In the Mosaic Law, we see the laying on of hands as a, as a sign, as a sign of with the scapegoat of the reconciliation, to be freed from sin and from a curse. And I don't know for sure the symbolism here, but again, you can see the poignancy of Jesus touching her, raising her by the hand, his personal contact with her, perhaps recommending her in his own prayer to the Father that she would obtain Mercy, grace, and deliverance from this illness. Now, I do believe that we should use the means at our disposal to meet our needs. If we are sick, we ought to take advantage of the medicines, the medical doctors and nurses, the trained ones that we have available in our community. If you have... <coughs> Needs of a lawyer, get a lawyer, get a good one, but get help. If you need financial advice, seek it. If you have friends and family that you can talk to and share things with of need, those are means at our disposal. But first, not last, but first, Tell him about it. Tell the Lord Jesus about those needs. We all have sickness and illness. We all have disappointments in our life. We all have loss and grief. Sin and sorrow is our lot. And yet we ought to be ones like the disciples. Immediately they went and told him about her. Go and tell him about it. Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, 
They heard that Jesus was nearby and they sent the message, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. See, the Lord wants to hear. He wants to know. He wants you to reach out to him. This verse, was, I think, was quoted in our Sunday school lesson, Philippians 4. You're very familiar with it, but do we practice it? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I want to believe that Peter and James and John came to her and told him about her because they knew there was no one else to turn to. They were not going to tie a braid of a knife to a thorn bush. They were going to turn to the one who is the Lord of these things. And notice that Jesus' healing is complete. He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. It's very simple. We don't know how much time has passed, but the, the scriptures don't put anything in the middle there. The fever left no weakness in her. Those of you who have had this yuck that goes around this time of year, you know that it takes days to, to feel right. That, that, you know, I just, I'm getting better, but I don't feel everything right. And yet here, we don't hear about any convalescence required. There was no recovery period prescribed by Jesus. Well, take two of these and, you know, call me in the morning and, and we'll put you on a regimen. And by the end, she rose and immediately began to serve She was entirely cured and entirely prepared to do what she was to do. We see down further, after the sun had set, that they began to bring him people who were sick, my version says, with various diseases, and he, many who were demon-possessed. There were, the remarkable thing is how many patients there were but even more remarkable is how powerful the physician was. <laughs> Some people will argue, and it says, he, evening came and they began to bring all who were ill and all those who were demon-possessed. And later it says he healed many and he cast out many demons. Well, they would argue, well, he didn't do all, it just says many. Well, I, I think Mark writes many because there were many <laughs> There were just a lot of people here. And yet, Jesus healed them all. He healed many because there were many. Fevers, blindnesses, lameness, leprosy, we'll read about them all. And a mistake that many commentators think is that Jesus only healed a few because we're only told about a few, and yet here we see there were many. And I don't believe that it's just the physical things that I just stated, blindness, lameness, but also mental diseases, depressions, anxieties, fears that we have heard about this morning as well. Their weaknesses, their infirmities, their afflictions were no prejudice to Jesus. 
He did not discriminate which diseases, which illnesses, which demon possessed. He healed. Wherever he went, there were patients drawn to him. Malachi, in that great chapter 4, that it's kind of just before the years and years of silence, gives us that hope that, if I could use the pun, the ray of hope. He says, the sun of righteousness arises with healing in his wings. And we should say, so let them come and let them be healed. Let them gather together. Let them come in droves. Let the whole city come. That's what Peter remembered. He remembered opening the door and it was the whole city that was at the door. They had heard about Jesus and they came to him. Matthew, in his accounting of this miracle, quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. Surely our sicknesses he himself bore and our pains he carried. And I know, like I said, I'm not trying to preach Matthew from Mark, but I think we need to look at this verse. Surely our sicknesses he himself bore. There is a connection, I think Matthew is telling us, between sin and sickness between death and disease. And does this not constitute the proper work of Christ? If he is to show us that he is able to remove sin by his actions that we see in these miracles, <laughs> he shows that, yes, I am able to remove sickness and sorrow and pain that result from that sin. And so that you would know that I have power over sin, he heals. When he took our nature upon himself, he identified with our nature, with its sin and its curse, that he might roll it away. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This was the plan of God, that he would become sin, that he, he himself knew no sin, but he would bear that sin. His conscience understands our sense of guilt and shame. His heart feels the ills, and he felt the ills of all those crowding in on this little house as if those ills were his. David Brown, in his commentary on this passage, says his whole ministry of healing as respects the body was but a visible exhibition and illustration of his mission to destroy the works of the devil. So in what sense does Christ bear the sicknesses of men? I believe that Christ bore sickness just as he bore mortal suffering for the sin of the world. Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. For by his wounds, he says, you were healed. True helping, according to Paul in Galatians, is coming under the burden that you would seek to lift. It's not just saying the word, as, as James says, you know, be warm and fed or be, be healed. 
But he says, bear one, another, one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Here we see the law of Christ in action. He was bearing their burdens by feeling their pain. The grief that he consoled was grief that he felt. The wants that he supplied were wants that he felt. The woes of their life, the discord, the, the disjunction of life, both inward and outward, John writes simply, and he was deeply moved in his spirit. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gentle healer. This is the one who bears our sins, but he also bears with us in our weakness. And then we see that he did not permit those to speak, the demons to speak of him, just as we had seen in the synagogue. He didn't permit them to speak, for they knew who he was. I, I've been pondering this, and I've come up with possibilities, and I'm not sure I have the right answer. It, it may be that he did not want to permit them to speak because he didn't want them to be the ones to reveal who he was. Or, or simply the time was not right for that revelation. Or he refused to have heralds, if you will, of his glory who were evil. The evil and unclean spirits wanted to repudiate him. We want, they hated him. They, didn't, they wanted to bring disrepute upon his character, and he would not allow it. Or maybe, as Matthew Henry says, he made them to know him, and that is what silenced them. He did not permit them to speak. Why? By revealing himself to them, they knew who he was and they knew that he had come to destroy them. But at any rate, he entered the domain of Satan and he won. He was proving himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, by his teaching, by his methods, by his manner. Jesus relieves us from sin by mercy and forgiveness. But don't forget that he also restores us by grace and power. We are not just left healed, we are brought to newness of life. Forgiveness is for the past, but for the future he gives us strength to minister, to care, to go on. We are given a new heart but we're also given an upright spirit. Or in the words of Paul, whom he justifies, he also sanctifies. This is the healing. This is the result. That we would not only be raised up, but we would be prepared to serve. And so, at the end of the day, and I know some of you listened to that sermon by our brother David a few weeks ago where he quoted this statement at the end of the day and I thought his eyes were not going to appear because he rolled him so far back in his head. At the end of the day has come a, a very cliche kind of statement. Uh, and yet we see at the end of the day, we see Jesus. When everybody else's day has ended, is that where Jesus ends? This phrase, I, I looked it up, I had to look it up. What do, what do people mean by the end of the day? 
Well, the Cambridge Dictionary says it's when everything is taken into consideration. Or we could say ultimately or in the long run, when all is said and done. The Grammarist website, which my spell check doesn't think the word Grammarist is grammatically correct. <laughs> it says it can literally be the end of one's waking hours or the end of one's workday. Or a summary statement that says when all the information has been considered or the most important part. And perhaps to our, our brother's rolling of his eyes, the Urban Dictionary I think probably hits it better for, for him and for me. It says a saying mostly used by people trying to prove points without having any other intelligent way of expressing it. <laughs> or the one that probably applies to me. An irritating verbal crutch indicating closure or synopsis for morons who are incapable of finishing a sentence without incorporating at least one tired cliché. <laughs> but here, at the end of the day, does there anyone with more drive and more energy than our Lord Jesus Christ? Think of that day, and this is one day in his ministry. Think of that day. He could have rested. It was the Sabbath after all, but he continued to do good. He could have come to Peter and Andrew's house expecting to be pampered. I just did a lot of work. I'm coming here to be honored, and yet he chose to walk with common men and women in their mundane life and day. He could have been annoyed. He could have been, you know, you guys really, you weren't prepared for me, and yet he accepted what they could offer him by their means. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the gentle healer. He is the one in Psalm 121 that I read this morning. He who keeps you will not slumber nor sleep. He is a teacher, he's a doer, he's a friend, he's a brother. He is the Lord of the synagogue, and he is the Lord of all diseases. Perhaps he was the one who taught Paul to say and to minister this way, I will most gladly spend and be spent in the service of your souls. We're prone to anxiety. We're, a brother used in his prayer, the old English word that I think applies to me, we are beset by doubts. But this is not from the Son of God. We can be cast down by our own fear of either failure or success or just getting out of our own bed sometimes, of not being able to persevere and keep on keeping on, but this is not of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus acts, if he heals, if he comes into your life, there are no half-baked cures. There is no unfinished work. It will be complete and it will be perfect. Because the same hand that reached out tenderly to lift up Peter's mother-in-law can raise you up.
as he reaches out, raises you up, and steadies you, and will lead you to the very last. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please, please help us to understand these things. Please help us to see Jesus in the Gospels, to see our brother, our friend, the gentle healer, the one whose heart beats with our heart, to help us understand these things, to help us live these things, to help us believe these things. Father, may you be glorified in your church. May you build her up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. From Psalm 121, that great last verse. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and evermore. Amen.